Uh, we, we are at point C now, about a quarter of the page down the back of your outline, grace as covenant, grace as covenant. Now, uh, we don't give a lot of thought to this concept in our culture anymore because we're not much of a covenant type of culture. Uh, many businesses, covenants breaks up, many marriage covenants break up. Uh, we're not a, a covenant-oriented culture, but God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and there's great security in covenant. God will never act in, in any way that's not in accordance with his covenant. So as you study the covenants of, of God, uh, you come into a great security and a great sense of grace in your relationship with him. Now, the covenants of the Bible are based on a concept called Susandry covenants. And that's a term that goes to the ancient times. And uh, just to give us a, a quick little bit of background, because we don't tend to study the Bible holistically as much in our culture anymore. Um, all of the Old Testament is purposely written as a sort of opposite, uh, a mirror, uh, an opposite kind of a slap in the face to the cultures around Israel. So all, like if you study what's called cosmogonies, which is means comes from two Greek words, cosmos, universe, and genos, birth, every culture has its, its stories about how the universe was birthed. But the, the cultures around Israel had mythopoeic stories. They had stories that were just fables. They were just myth. They didn't, they, even the people never intended to believe them. They said, that's not important. What's important is the, what the meaning of the story is. On the other, and Israel, in contradistinction, saw itself as, as in covenant with the God of history, the God who was outside and above time, who created time, and had a historical unfolding purpose. So right from the very beginning, the very first line of Genesis is a, is a rebuttal to all the worldly cultures around Israel. All the cosmogonies of ancient Egypt and so forth begin with that in, uh, in the beginning there was chaos and water was a universal symbol for chaos and it was because it's formless when in a storm it's all over the place. And, the, and Genesis 1 starts with the opposite. In the beginning there was God. So the, the, the world around it says in the beginning there's disorder and, the, and Genesis 1 says in the beginning there's the God who creates and, and makes order. And then he, and then the earth is formless and void, and the spirit of God is hovering on the waters, and He creates a universe where, that He imposes order and structure. So every aspect of of uh, the Old Testament borrows from the cultures around it in order to say exactly the opposite point, even often using their forms. And the Old Covenant forms uh, use. Uh, rely heavily on the on the covenants that Egypt, the Hittites, etc. use, which were called Susandry covenants, and the Isra and the God of Israel had exactly the opposite kind of covenant with his people. It's a Susandry covenant form with an entirely different spirit, attitude, base, purpose, etc. So that's we'll we'll develop that here in just a minute. But what you want to see is is that again it our our God is a God of history. And he has graciously, if you look at, go back to the first page and you look at the three theme verses of this, of this series, 
Jumping right into Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that God set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of peoples, because it is the Lord that loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and so forth. So um, right away, the the reason God saved uh, Abraham Isaac, Jacob made covenant with them, began to build them into his special people. God's purpose has always been to have a people that would mediate the presence of God to the earth, a people that would show forth the glory of God in the way they lived together corporately in community. God always had that purpose, and he chose Israel for that purpose. And uh, when he makes covenant with them, he actually uses the form of a Susandry covenant, with a completely different spirit and attitude, as we're going to see here in a second. He has a people for his own possession, his peculiar special treasure people. And that's the language of Exodus 19, 1 through 6. First Peter quotes that language when he says, you're a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a people for God's own spe- possession, his special treasure, and so forth. So God chose Israel for no reason other than he could do so, and he chose to put his love on them. They didn't earn it. They, there was nothing that would endear them to God. They weren't more godly than the people around. They weren't more talented. They weren't more in number. They weren't wealthier. They weren't wiser. They just were his gracious choice. And so grace is, is, is God's choice, as we, as we saw in the uh, previous de- de- definitions. He, he unmerited without without any deserving, unmerited favor, unmerited choice in election, uh, and he puts his love on them. But his love is not just some what we what we've defined love as in our culture today is you know those bumper stickers I love Jesus and I love my dog and I love mashed potatoes or I you know I don't know what the, you know I love everything and and it and it has no meaning. Uh, God defines his love by covenant. So he grants them relationship in the form of a Susanry covenant. Now, um, here are some aspects of a Susanry treaty that the nations had. Susanry treaties uh, and similar covenants between Near Eastern nations were quite, quite prevalent in the, in the Levant or the ancient Orient. The Hittites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and other Mesopotamian dynasties that fell and rise, uh, some of them in the pages of the Bible, other civilizations, imposed Susanry treaties on their surrounding conquered or subjugated nations. So the spirit of it was kind of a farcical thing. It was a little bit like our government today, you know, telling you that you're supposed to give your fair contributions and and they care and so forth as they steal your money and rob all your productivity. It was, uh, you know, the Babylonians or the Hittites would conquer a people, and they would say, because we have saved you, because we have benevolently redeemed you, uh, we will do these following things for you. We will protect you from other nations' invasions and so forth. In exchange, we're going to tax the heck out of you, and you're going to be our slaves and so forth, okay? That was kind of the whole thing. So the Israelite covenants follow that format throughout the Bible for a whole different spirit. Uh, It starts with, because I chose you, and I put my love upon you, and I set you free. And so um, the ancient Israelites reflected the understanding 
of the suzerain and their understanding of the covenant law with God. The structure is a gracious covenant law structured similarly to the Hittite form or, or of suzerainty. Now I'm going to, uh, for those of you who want who follow up and study these things, I would encourage you to look at uh, Exodus 19, the first eight verses, Exodus 20, the first 17 verses, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy 28. If you want to look at these things, uh, I don't have time to read all those portions of scriptures, but you'll see the. I'm going to give you uh, eight parts of a Sudendry covenant real quick. And what I want you to get out of this, the takeaway is that our God is reliable. One of the names of Jesus on his sash in the book of Revelation is faithful and true. Our God is not whimsical. Uh, almost all Christians I know today have deep-seated insecurities in their relationship with God. In a, by, by the basis of Scripture, there's no reason to, do, to, to have that. That's, uh, you know, from the very beginning, the very first temptation to Eve was indeed hath God said, doubting the covenant word of God and the covenant boundaries of God and the, and the covenant character of God. And he said, no, no, God is trying to keep you from something. And the spiritual warfare that we actually go through uh, that leads to us being riddled with insecurities and fears and so forth is, is ultimately rooted in doubting the nature and character of our covenant father. One of the reasons it's such a tragedy, the, the breakdown of fatherhood and the high divorce rate and so forth, is, uh, you know, Hebrews 12 brings out, we, we were meant to be raised by a father, and that father was meant to represent God to us. And we form many of our ideas about God based on that relationship as we're growing up. And uh, ever since the fall of man, that relationship has been messed up to one degree or another in that it gets better as cultures get more godly and more Christian. It gets worse as cultures get more ungodly and more, un more unchristian. However, in, re in redemption and in salvation, God restores to you the relationship of a father and a son or a daughter. And you can count on certain aspects of his fatherhood because they're in, they're in the suzerainty covenants of the scripture in the Old and New Testament. So listen to these, uh, these eight uh, uh, forms or parts uh, of, of the God's covenant structures of grace. One is a preamble. Uh, the preamble always identifies the party. By the way, our founding fathers followed this structure in our, in our own constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. However, they understood themselves as to be basing it on the Declaration of Independence, which starts with, with that God has ordained certain inalienable rights and so forth. So the parties involved were God and the people. So in the preamble, the person imposing the Susanry Covenant identifies himself. God introduces himself as Yahweh and a God of faithfulness and, and many other uh, word pictures he gives us of who he is. And he identifies who his people are and what the basis of their redemption is. Now, the, in the prologue, the second part is the prologue, and he lists all the deeds already performed and accomplished. I took you out of Egypt by a mighty hand. I delivered you by ten plagues. 
uh, escalating in intensity until I made Pharaoh let you go. And I gave you favor with the people so that they endowed you with jewelry and gifts and grace. And I took you out on eagle's wings and I, I sustained you, says the Lord. Okay, that's why Christians have always in the Lord's Supper, we look also to the Passover because the Passover was a foreshadowing of the great redemption that God would accomplish in Christ. Okay, so the prologue um, lists the deeds always that the sudren, sudren the, the, the sovereign, the Lord, has performed for the servants or the vassals. The difference between the Israelite and the Hittite models is God is into a form of servitude that sets us free. The basis of, of his kingdom is love, whereas the basis of the kingdoms of darkness and the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of Satan is fear and intimidation. The basis of God's kingdom is, serve, is, is a love that releases and frees. So everything in the Bible is exactly the opposite of the world as we go through so the, the Lord in the prologue tells the redemptive acts that he's already done on behalf of his people. Thirdly, he gives them stipulations, terms to be upheld by the servants or the people for the life of the treaty. Again, in the ancient world, they were vassals, slaves, and so forth. In, in the kingdom, they're sons and daughters. It's, it's an entirely different spirit. It's the opposite spirit. This includes tributes, obligations, other forms of subordination that would be imposed on any nation or, or on the people and so forth. And uh, fourthly, it gives the provisions for annual public reading. Um, it's interesting that, that uh, post-Civil War and just a little bit before the Civil War, for the first time in church history, uh, a whole lot of, of church movements, whole lot of denominations and evangelicalism and fundamentalism for the first time stopped having public readings in, in, during, the, the, during the worship and the service. That had gone on not just since the early church. That was the major thing that happened in the synagogue. Remember when they gave Jesus the scroll and he read from the scripture and then he said this, this day, the synagogue system, which grew up uh, in the intertestament period uh, was based on all the way back to when they you found books of the law and and Josiah read the scripture or when Nehem, when they were when they were coming back from the captivity and Nehemiah re read the scripture they would read the whole law of Moses prior to Passover there was public reading of scripture so uh, part of the Susandry covenant format was that that the people got to hear it annually. And that's where the whole cycle of, of scripture readings on church calendar idea came from. Uh, it came from also Leviticus 23, which is based on this whole fourth point, the provision for annual reading. Fifthly, uh, there was a divine witness to the treaty. All the nations had their gods, and, uh, and the gods were the witnesses to the treaties. And that's why uh, the book of Hebrews says that because God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. There could be no greater witness than the living Trinity. 
The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wrote the covenants, and they witnessed the ratification of the covenants. When uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Darius or, or the Pharaoh of Egypt imposed a, a, a Susandry covenant on a subjugated people, they would claim that the gods of Egypt, or whatever nation it was, witnessed the covenant and ordained it. They would claim a thing that came later to be known in history as the divine right of kings. That this, you know, this was meant to be because our God said so. That was some of the significance when the Philistines were trying to, to subjugate Israel and God raised up Samson. God had their, their God, Dagon, fall down nightly in the temple and break his hands and break the beak off his nose and, and put it because he was, he was being knocked prostrate before Jehovah, before Yahweh. Uh, because God was, was letting the Philistines know that their God was no God at all. So there's a divine witness to the treaty. Um, next, there's blessings if the stipulations of the treaty are withheld, are upheld. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, the choice in the, the beginning of the covenant is based on God's gracious choice. However, that doesn't mean, as we, were, as we said last week, we need to remind ourselves all through this grace series, the, t- the two errors that have happened throughout church history, the one that le- would led up to the Reformation, was that our performance and our initiation and our trying to keep the law of God makes us acceptable before God. That could never be. The scriptures make that very plain in both covenants. You're not righteous or acceptable by God to God by any choice. And in fact, you didn't even find him. He found you. He chose you. You didn't choose him. But the other extreme that has become sort of popular uh, in the last 100, 150 years is that because I've been chosen and I have grace and I've gone through some uh, sinner's prayer or something of this nature, then there's no stipulations. There's no obligations. There's no behavior required. Uh, I'm just, God is my genie to bless me. That's part of the whole prosperity gospel. I can even manipulate him by claiming his promises and so forth. That extreme is just as much heresy as the extreme that led up to the Reformation. That's why I say we need as big of a, uh, a restoration of the church today as the Reformation was. So, um, then there's this, uh, the seventh is there's curses if the stipulations are not with upheld. If you want to see that, um, do, do a little favor for yourself. Read Deuteronomy 28, which has about 11 verses of the blessings God would bring for obedience, followed by 55 verses of, or 58 verses of, cov- of, of curses that God would bring about for disobedience. And God brought, though, every one of those to pass uh, starting with the, the Babylonian captivity of the northern kingdom, then, then uh, in about 722 B.C., and then about 586 B.C., the, the uh, captivity of Judea. But finally, in the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus, every one, between 67 and 70 A.D., every one of those curses was fulfilled. Never has a people in the earth suffered as much as what the, the Israelites did during those four years. 
and that fulfilled what Jesus had prophesied in Matthew. Matthew is a covenant lawsuit from uh, Jesus, who who stands in the lineage of Abraham as the second Adam, who is uh, stands on the shoulders of all the priests, being the final and and high priest. Uh, stands on the shoulders of all the prophets, being the final prophet. Uh, in in that sense, the, not the final in the sense of there were no prophets after that, but in terms of uh, fulfilling all that. And uh, he he fulfilled all the the things that the king. Uh, he was the first person who had all the offices of king, prophet, lawgiver, judge. All of this in Christ. And Matthew is God's covenant lawsuit against his people that have rejected him over and over and over. And finally, he's he's saying, "Your house is left to you desolate." The kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing. My, I, the God of grace who chose you to be his people, you have rejected, rejected, and rejected that grace. And finally, I'm going to take it out from under you and fulfill all the sanctions. There's some, a, lot of, a lot of reform thinker guys call them sanctions, but they're the curses. And fine, uh, finally, the eighth aspect of all covenant was a, was a covenant meal, a sacrificial meal. Both parties would share a meal to so show their participation in the treaty and in the covenant. And uh, Jesus was not just standing on the tradition of the Passover, but the Passover was standing on the tradition of the nations in exact opposite contradistinction to what the nations practiced. So the first point today here is point C on your outline, the third definition of grace is that grace is, uh, is uh, by covenant. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4 says this, a God of faithfulness without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Ascribe greatness to our God the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, the next aspect of the covenant is um, repentance. Repentance is granted by grace. Then, I'm sorry, the next aspect of grace is we're studying grace. The fourth definition of grace is that grace leads to repentance. Repentance is granted by grace. You could say it either way. Grace produces the fruit and the works of grace, which uh, grace establishes Jesus as Lord in our hearts and in our lives. It causes us to pursue following him to pursue his cross. Uh, We pursue grace. Grace pursues us and causes us to begin to pursue grace and produces uh, repentance. Romans 2, 4, for instance, says the kindness of God leads to repentance. Jesus says no one can come unless the Father draws him. It's God's grace that draws us to God in the first place. Jesus also in the Passover supper, talking about the helper that he would send, the Holy Spirit, says when the Holy Spirit comes, John 16, uh, he will, verse 7, he will convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the grace of, the, of God by the initiation of the Holy Spirit, who the Father and Son sent, and he represents the Father and the Son, uh, that begins to convict us and open our eyes to see our sinfulness, because our sinfulness is incredibly deceitful and incredibly hidden from us. We all think we have a few problems, and God helps us by the light of his grace to be convicted uh, of sin and, and have our eyes open 
to see the depth of our need for a Savior. Um, in the, 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 the Holy Spirit leads us to confession. Confession means to say the same thing God says. It comes from the Greek word homilageo. The grace, the grace of God causes us to stop rationalizing, blame-shifting, excuse-making, and, and, and saying later. One of the things that, I, that you deal with all the time in pastoring people is they'll say, well, you're just going to have to be patient with me because I'm going to overcome my drug addiction someday, but you know, it's probably going to take 30, you know, because I really don't want to obey God right now <laughs> is really what it gets down to. You know, and, and of course, sanctification and maturity is a process, but at times we use this whole uh, resisting the grace of God, resisting that today is the day of salvation, to resisting today if you hear his voice, to have all sorts of excuses and rationalizations for why we're going to get to it later. I'm an expert at it myself. All of us in our fallen natures are experts at that. At that, uh, uh, And it's the grace of God that sets us free from that. Sometimes one area at a time, but whenever we get set free from from uh, what what uh, one preacher that, that some of us knew named Bob Mumford used to call VRG, verbalized religious garbage, whenever God sets us free from that, it's by grace to, to confess the truth and the reality. Um, that's why John the Baptist said, uh, therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, the first nine chapter, the first nine verses of Ephesians 2 are one of the greatest presentations of the gospel in the Bible, we've been using those verses for our the basis of our series at Wright State called the Gospel of the Kingdom. And they end in verse 10 with saying, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The new creation that he graciously puts in us actually does do works. But we don't do works to be accepted. We do works because we've been accepted. And because he's changed our heart to want to know him and be pleasing to him and to and to to be where he is and to do the works that he does. Just like Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father. And when God changes our heart, when we're born again, when we're regenerated, when the Holy Spirit comes to, to live in us in a regeneration capacity, our heart is changed to always want to be where he is. So um, Jesus said in John 7, 17, a very important verse to think through sometime. If anyone's willing to do his will, he'll know the teaching that it's of God. Uh, the source of our confusion often and deception and different things like that is frankly just our unwillingness to do his will. Um, moving on to point E or the fifth definition of grace, grace as divine enablement. Um, grace empowers, equips, and transforms us by his glory to do his will. Uh, and when this church started Grace Christian Fellowship, we used to have a slogan that I think is one of the best definitions of grace I've ever heard. Acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. And again, the two deceptions have been over the years has been you have to grow. You have to clean. You, you'll hear people when you're sharing the gospel all the time saying, well, I, I can't come to church or I, I, I need to kind of clean myself up a little bit to be accepted. You know, you'll never be able to do that. He he accepts you on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, and you're, and you're crying out that you need it right where you're at. Uh, but the other deception is because you've done that, 
you can just go keep him at an arm's distance and go live like hell and do whatever you want. And that's become the modern deception is equally strong as the ref is the deception uh, prior to the Reformation. Grace um, empowers you to do God's work. Here's some verses on that. Acts 20, 32, I can't read all the verses that are in your outline for time's sake, but um, Paul talking to the Ephesian elders in his final address to them, knowing he would never see them again, says, now I commend you to God in the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's a verse we'll look at again in this series in the third chapter three. Acts 4, 33 says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them. The grace caused great things to happen. Grace causes empowerment. It transforms. It brings the glory of God into the earth and into our lives. Romans 1, 4 and 5 says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace. We've received grace through Jesus Christ for for what? For, for So we can just uh, enjoy it? No. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, a phrase that Paul uses both at the beginning and the end of Romans on purpose. He's so His entire discourse, uh, the greatest book of the, of the Bible about the gospel overall, he, he hems it in at the beginning and the end by the phrase, the obedience of faith. Uh, Hebrews 4.16 there, uh, well, let's go to Hebrews, yeah, that 4.16 is good. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 12, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So, and that there be no immoral person like, so, like Esau or godless person. So grace uh, has expectations. You know, if you care about somebody, if you love somebody, you don't have manipulations or control of them. You free them, but you do have expectations of the, of both of you de- growing, developing, uh, building character. Char- jer- life is a journey either toward character or away from character. And that's probably the, the one of the great missing ingredients of our culture today. People don't understand that your character is your destiny and your character is is sown by, if you sow a thought, you, you'll reap a motivation or an attitude. If you sow a motivation and attitude, you'll reap, you'll reap decisions and, and, uh, and behaviors and, and so forth. And as you sow those, you, you build a character. And your character becomes your destiny. It's amazing how even in the political environment, you, hear, you started hearing this, uh, oh, in the late 60s, and you hear it's just snowballed for 50 years now where, what does the private character of politicians have to do with, with who they are? It's <laughs> everything, of course. But it's amazing that, that the, the bulk of the news media and, and out there, they think it has not, it's, it's all about their, their public ideas. <laughs> wow. How deceived can we get? Uh, Got to move along here. Sixthly, graced as relationship. This is really, really important. Grace, because what's happened again uh, in, you know, in the last 100, 150 years since the Civil War is increasingly uh, the faith has been reduced to an abstract belief. If you believe, you believe certain doctrines. But it, 
grace is a trust. Uh, if you uh, read Rain Grudem's Systematic Theology, he has an excellent chapter where he argues for just getting rid of the word faith and belief because it's come to be butchered so badly and to substitute the word trust. Uh, the Amplified Bible, whenever you see the word faith or belief, it says cling to, rely on, trust, believe in, you know, follow. You know, belief is, is enough to put your weight on it. If I believe this pew is secure, I'll go ahead and plop my fat old body down on it. But if I have my doubts that maybe termites have eaten through it and the legs are broken or whatever, I might test it a while first, but, but I'm not going to plop down on it. Trust all through the Bible means following. It means obeying. It means taking up your cross. It means being where he is. It means being a part of his people and his plan and purposes in his people. Uh, it was never meant to be an individualistic, isolated thing. Grace is relational. Uh, the greatest promise in Jeremiah 31 of the coming of a better covenant was they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And no one will have to say to one another, know the Lord anymore. You can know the Lord for yourself. Now, it, th that was never meant to be this, then we live out our relationship with the Lord, all individualistic, just hearing God's voice and doing whatever we want and all this, but 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 I can't know the Lord for you. You can't know the Lord for me, and that's one of the beauty uh, beauties of it. I'm an older guy now, and I've I've been relinquished uh, off to the sidelines of watching the uh, basketball and football and so forth. But believe me, if I was young again and didn't have back pain, and I could, I would be with Edwin and Sam and those guys shooting hoops all the time. Wouldn't you rather play than watch? Put you know, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. The, the beauty of the new covenant is you're on the team. You're in the game. You get to know the Lord. You get to know the, the God of the universe. You can know his heart. You can know his thoughts. Grace is relational. When God initiates grace in his life, he does so by introducing himself to you. Jesus said it this way in John 5. He said, a time will come when the dead, he's talking about those who are dead in their sins and trespasses like Ephesians 2, the dead will hear my voice, and those who will hear will live. I'm so happy to have my pastor and longtime friend Ray Nethery here because I like a relationship with him. I like to hear his voice, and I'm glad that he's learned the modern uh, emails, and we exchange some emails nowadays, but I'd much rather talk on the phone, and I'd much rather have him here for the weekend, and I'd much rather be face-to-face. All those of you who are married, probably when you have to travel for business, you probably send emails and text and so forth, but you'd rather have an evening out together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, grace is a relationship. So, and as such, it's something that you grow in. There's three words for knowledge in the, in the New Testament, gnosko, gnosis, and epigenosis. And... Uh, uh, Paul says, uh, talks about the grace that was granted us in Christ Jesus. And that's that those verses, by the way, in 2 Timothy are a parallel to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Really, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Uh, gr the grace is in Christ Jesus. It's not in an abstract concept. It's in a relationship. Uh, Peter, uh, by the way, 2 Peter is a most underestimated epistle. I really am out of time. I really wish I could tell you why. Uh, you'll have to see me 
later for that, I guess. But it is, Second Peter is awesome. It's very important. It's, it's critically important, and it's pretty much neglected. But nevertheless, he starts the epistle by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the abstract knowledge of various ideas and doctrines. Oh, wait, I read that wrong. I'm doing that to be facetious. It's the grace and peace is multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. In knowing the Lord, grace and peace will be multiplied to you. The reason we uh, strongly encourage people to humble themselves and and, and uh, do what it takes to break besetting sins and so forth, sin separates you from that relationship. It's too, bi- it's too big a price. It, it's too big a price. He ends the epistle, the very last verse says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. But in- by the way, interestingly, in both cases, he uses a different word for knowledge. He uses gnosis in one and epigenosis in the other. So uh, lastly, and boy, I'm going to run over a couple minutes, but not I can't very far. So be uh, this, this is really important. So try to hone in here a little bit, and I'm going to try to focus and get, get this as clear as I can in a short time. Grace upon grace. In John 1, 16, 17, which is the basis for this, the whole series, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Many people t- read this verse to say the, the exact opposite of what it really says in the Greeks. So many people think that he's juxtaposing the grace that came through Jesus Christ against the law of Moses. I'm going to read you uh, just a little quote from the InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary, a very new commentary that's, uh, if you know InterVarsity Press, they usually don't do anything lousy. Uh, In other words, there are some quality folks behind that organization. In verse 17, uh, the word upon there is the word anti. In the Greek, which can mean over and against or opposite, but it also can, and in this case does mean, Instead of, in place of, because of, by this cause, wherefore by this cause, wherefore by this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. It's that same verb, uh, same idea. In verse 17 is sometimes read as rejection of Moses and the law. That's a philosophy called antinomianism, by the way. Very, very, took very deep hold of the church in the 1890s to 1920s. Uh, verse 17 sometimes is read as a rejection of the law of Moses, but the relation here is between Jesus Christ and Moses and the law is one of fulfillment. The graciousness of the God revealed in the scriptures has now been perfectly manifested in Jesus. The careful construction of verse 17 even allows us to say more precisely how this is the case. The significant contrast in John is not of the law over and against grace and truth, since it is the same graciousness of the same God that is revealed in both. Rather, it's the contrast between the verbs, was given, adothe, and came, translated realized in the New American Standard, which is egento, egento, the verb to give. Uh, Now, the verb to give itself speaks of divine graciousness because it obviously talks of God's gifts. 
So indeed, grace and truth were manifest at the giving of the law. Exodus 34, 6 makes that very clear. So these verbs are not contrasting in any uh, a negative with a positive. Rather, the divine graciousness evident in the, in the divine was given is tremendously intensified in the divine he came. Okay, in other words, God gave grace and truth through Moses and through the law and choosing and making covenant. And now he's intensifying it by incarnating his son, by giving his, uh, the son. The same graciousness has now been manifest in an entirely new mode. The word became, again, egeneto, uh, the word became flesh. So there's a contrast here, but it's one of degree, not of opposite. He's contrasting the grace and truth that came through Moses by saying so much greater grace and truth came through, through Jesus, not, uh, not an opposite thing. It was not that there was law and works and so forth. The, 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 co- the old covenant was a covenant of grace, and, and the Old Testament saints were saved by faith in grace. But it's, uh, the contrast is one of degree. The grace received in Jesus is added upon the grace that came through Moses and the law. The association between the two is basically one of continuity and of the partial contrasted with the f- complete or the full. In Moses, there's partial grace. In Jesus, there's the fullness of grace. No one, uh, while, there is continu- while there is continuity, it is nevertheless a quantum leap that has con- occurred in Jesus as verse 18 makes clear, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who's at the Father's side or the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. So again, the basis of this series, Grace Upon Grace, is that, is the, is that grace is the whole message of the Bible, but grace accelerates to a quantum leap. It accelerates, it like jumps into hyperspace for you Star Wars generation people in Jesus Christ. Amen.